0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I'm really happy to introduce you to a new guest host for Spirit in Action. Regular listeners have heard Citizens Climate Radio and Peterson Toscano as our guest host every three months for a couple years now. And you've also heard Liam Hooper along with Peterson periodically when they guest host with their Bible Bash material. But today you'll get to know Patricia Stansbury, also known as Sonny Gardner who will be sharing the fruits of her Lightly on the Ground broadcast originating on WRIR, Richmond Independent Radio, over in Virginia. Let's get Patricia on the line now. So Patricia, it's so wonderful to have you here acting as guest host for the first time for Spirit in Action.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your inviting me.
0: Actually, this has been a long time coming. I first met you, spoke to you face-to-face back in 2009 when the Friendly Folk Dancers were traveling down to your area.
1: Well, I'm glad we finally got around to it. That was fun.
0: And how long have you been doing your shows on WRIR?
1: Something like 12 or 13 years, and the radio station has just entered its 16th
0: year. Tell me a little bit about the segments that we're going to be sharing today from the 50th anniversary for Quaker House.
1: Quaker House is an organization that's been providing services, counseling services, and conscientious objection counseling to people enlisted in the military and former military, and their families are the issues that come about so commonly through military service, and there's no less need for it now than ever, but in celebrating the 50th anniversary People came from all over to tell their stories of how they had worked with Quaker House and what their story was. And what we have here are several of those stories. Monisha Rios is from Vieques, which is an island off Puerto Rico that was so dramatically affected from wartime. It was used as a bombing range and a test range for munitions, and it became uninhabitable. But so much of the world has suffered from war. But anyway, that's what Quaker House does. And uh, it was such a joy to meet some of these people who had actually benefited from their
0: services. So we're going to get over to that again. Thank you for taking over. I hereby hand the council to you. You're in charge.
1: You are tuned in to Lightly on the Ground Radio. I'm Patricia Stansbury with another episode from The Road Trip that included a heartfelt celebration of Quaker House having served military enlistees, veterans and their families for over 50 years. Lyle Adley Warwick introduces the speakers. First, you'll hear Chuck Fager tell the story of Quaker House, trimmed to fit our format. You can hear the full 11 or so minutes replete with humor and history in an upcoming episode of our sister program, Groundswell. Next segment is Ricky Clousing and me conversing at Quaker House. Ricky worked as an interrogator in Afghanistan and had to stop to save his heart and soul. His spiritual life is a major part of his story. Manisha Rios also joined me. We talked about surviving sexual violence in the military despite the persecution she experienced in a system rampant with abuse of all kinds. She is from Vieques, Puerto Rico and served in the U.S. Army during the Persian Gulf Wars.
2: Our longest-serving director, Chuck Fager, was director from 2001 until 2012. He's a prolific writer and has published many books and pamphlets, which he also did while at Quaker House. He increased awareness of Quaker House nationally through his newsletters and outreach, created with John Stevens the Quaker, the Quaker House character, Sergeant Abe, Truth in Recruiting. He educated the public on torture and domestic violence in the military, the military industrial complex, and other peace issues by organizing protests and conferences. As well as with his writing. Thank you, Lyle. He didn't
3: mention that the first thing about me and Quaker House is that I really, really, really did not want to come here. <laughs> when I first learned about it at Baltimore yearly meeting late summer of 2001, I said, I don't want to go to North Carolina. I just said, Look, you got the house. I hate to move. So I'll go down there and, you know, six months or so and I'll let you know if I want to stay. So I stayed and it was really important. The idea about being adaptable is one I want to reinforce because when I got there, I mean, even the stuff I, was, I knew about, domestic violence was not on our agenda. Two weeks after I moved in, a woman named Shalomar Franceschi, anybody remember that name? A uh, woman of color went to a Mexican restaurant that I went to lots of times when I was here on a bright Sunday afternoon thinking she was going to have a meeting with a brother-in-law, and then out from the pillar steps her ex-husband with a big knife, proceeds to cut her throat, stab her about 20 times, broad daylight, leave her in a pool of blood, walk quietly over to a car and drive off. Now, I wasn't there, but I read about it in the paper, and I thought, well, welcome to Fayetteville, Chuck. Her ex-husband had been a soldier. And then, later that year, we had this incredible series four murder suicides by special forces guys coming home from Afghanistan and proceeding to murder their wives and then kill themselves. The town fathers in Fayetteville, and I'm not being sexist when I say that, it was fathers, guys, were trying to repackage and recreate Fayetteville's image. They were tired of being called Fayette Some of you, if you came down 95 and got off the exit here, you may have noticed you came past a sign that said Fayetteville... History, heroes, and a hometown feeling. That's the last remaining sign of this campaign they came up with. And just as they were about to roll it out in June, you had four of these murder suicides in about six weeks. All of a sudden, they had lots of national publicity. They didn't like it much, and that campaign went up in a puff of smoke. Well, that put domestic violence on our agenda, whether we wanted it there or not. And then a year after that, Abu Ghraib came up. Torture. We weren't talking about torture. Fort Bragg was not the center of the web of torture, but all kinds of dots connected to that stuff came right through here. And so we couldn't be quiet about that. At least, I mean, that's something I can't be quiet about. As a matter of fact, if some of you has noticed a little postcard on your tables, that's mine. Um, One third of an organization called the Quaker Initiative 10 Torture. And this is our latest thing about a new movie coming out about the Senate Intelligence Committees try to investigate CIA torture. The CIA didn't want them to do it. This is, it's a movie movie. It's not a documentary. It's going to be out in November. I recommend you look at it. i got lots of these postcards to take home to your meetings. Remember that torture, official torture, is one of the unresolved issues of these past wars. It's a serious matter still. And our assignment about it is to forget about it. So this movie will help us not forget for at least a little while. That's an important thing. So anyway, oh yeah, I had to rebuild the house. Not the exciting part, but, well, the roof leaked. The heating system went out. The hot water heater blew up and flooded underneath, and yada, 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 and it ended up, the place was about to fall down. I'm not a house guy. I had never owned a house. Didn't want to. Clearly, it was in my karma to be doing this. We ended up, we had to renovate the house. Basically, from the ground up, we figured it was going to cost us $200,000, which gave me chills. I mean, I had been successfully increasing the budget and fundraising. You all were very responsive, but still, that was a whole lot of money. But we did it, and we got the house rebuilt. Some people, like my partner Wendy, who's an architect, had lots of fun with that project. I dealt with it with the help of Marty Hubie over here, who had many, many extra frequent flyer miles. I ran away to France. That was the way I I coped with it. I pretended to be given talks about torture. Actually, I really was. But. And I met some women here. There was a chapter of the National Organization of Women, a chapter that put most of the others I ever saw way in the shade. These women, who are as old as me and some older, they kick butt in this town. And some of them that still can kick are still doing it. And the chapter is actually bigger. We had them meet at Quaker House for a number of years. They were my posse. They really helped me with a lot of things. And then about a year before I left, I discovered, I'm an old reporter, that Fort Bragg was building a drone base. And it was actually a scoop, a news scoop. And I found stuff out about it. I sent it all to the Fayetteville Observer. I said, here, I'm going to put this in the Quaker House newsletter in a month or two, but you can have it now for a news article. They didn't touch it until like three years later, and I was gone, when somebody at Fort Bragg Information Office called them up and said, oh, yeah, we'd like to talk to you about drones now. It wasn't one of their best moments. And the only two other things I want to mention is that, first of all, there were about 50 projects like Quaker House around military bases when we started. Out of that whole bunch of them, all across the country, there's only one left, and that's Quaker House. My own opinion, after 11 years there, is that it was the Quaker identity and Quaker stubbornness that accounts for that. Started by Quakers, mostly paid for by Quakers, mostly, not always, but mostly staffed by Quakers, and kept in line by a Quaker board that came from mostly this region. This is important. I'll give you a lecture about why I think it's important for Quaker organizations to be seriously connected to real Quakers, but I do think that, and... Working at the Quaker House really reinforced that for me. So I'm grateful for all that help and accountability too. I have every report I made to the board. Such exciting reading, there's about 40 of them <laughs> <laughs> over 11 years. And the other thing I want to mention is, I think one of the more important people you need to hear from now is the guy to my left, Ricky Clausing, who we accompanied while he was wrestling with his conscience and after he did when he took action. And when he paid dues, we were with him. And he's also had a life since he left here 13 years ago that I think we ought to hear about. So thank you very much for giving me that opportunity.
2: Thank you, Chuck, for uh, those words and for doing part of my job for me by introducing Ricky Clausing. He was an Army interrogator in. Iraq. As a born-again Christian, he tried to convince army intelligence that the interrogation techniques were self-defeating. He went AWOL in Canada for 14 months when he could not continue those techniques. When he returned and turned himself in, Quaker House supported him throughout his trial, as Chuck has intimated just now. Got some media attention out of it and exposed the interrogation techniques and supported him while he served his sentence.
1: Thank you, Ricky Clousing. Tell me your story, please. You were in the military in the 82nd Airborne.
2: Yeah,
4: I was. I was a sergeant in the 82nd Airborne. I was an interrogator. I was stationed at Fort Bragg and deployed to Iraq in 2004 in support of the elections. When I was deployed, I... Struggled with the daily abuse of power that I watched and the lack of accountability.
1: And this, you were an interrogator. Who were you interrogating?
4: Um, detainees or insurgents that were you know, fighting against U.S. occupation.
1: How were those people brought to you?
4: They were captured on raids or if they were arrested after some sort of attack or incident, they would be brought to the interrogation facility by like security forces.
1: And you had mentioned abuse of power before I broke in.
4: Yeah, well, just the daily abuse of power that, you know, comes with an occupation. So that looks like the daily, you know, harassment of civilians, the abuse and even sexual abuse of civilians, you know, the mental and psychological trauma that is put on a population when an occupation takes over a city like that Mm -hmm. or a country rather.
1: And this troubled you?
4: Yeah, it really challenged my feelings of wanting to be in the military anymore. So I started doubting my ability to operate as a soldier. So yeah, when I came home, I was talking to counselors and chaplains, trying to get help from um, the questions I was struggling with. I didn't really get much guidance, and I was fortunate enough to get directed into the GI Rights Hotline and came across the Quaker House um where I received you know tremendous support and information on how to you know deal with some of the crisis of conscience that I was feeling.
1: How did Quaker House differ from the churches and and such that you had encountered?
4: You know, the perspective I was getting from the chaplain and even from church members from back home where I'm from is that with regards to the military and the government, that essentially God established the government and our job is also to obey it and that the Bible says that. So being that it would really not be an option to go AWOL would would be really kind of in defiance of that. Um, so the Quaker House, um, you know, was able to provide me some understanding that it's okay to feel like that the activities that are expected of me in the military um, don't align with the values that are outlined in the Bible and that it's okay to make an of, you know, an active stance against that if your conscience is telling you such.
1: And are you a Christian? Yes. And have been throughout all this?
4: No, well, I was, um, I became um, a born-again Christian in high school through experimenting with psychedelic mushrooms. Um, I kind of got directed into the church, and that began my spiritual journey and the spiritual language I started to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, But later, when I was going through that time in the military, it also challenged my faith in a way where I doubted my beliefs and I doubted, you know, God's existence. And I questioned whether or not, um, you know, the church was, was right or being manipulated and and what was right, what was truth. So I, I kind of went on a rediscovery of myself and, um, and have come kind of full circle back. You know, I don't identify with a certain denomination or, um, or even associate with a Christian church. Um, but it's. Part of the spiritual language that I feel like is who I am mm-hmm. um, when I was deployed, I had a translator who was a Sufi, and him and I became really close friends and I was really inspired by his devotion and um, you know the, his relationship with god and I was really um, since I've returned um, there's some um, some books on Sufism that have really Bridged my understanding of God and helped me um, you know not block myself into a box because of certain language or certain types of n- nouns that we call the you know the divine, but really stripping that down and and allowing to really just focus on the experience has enabled me to not worry so i mean yes i I do call myself a Christian, but I feel just like Gandhi when he answered that question of you know, he's a Christian, he's a, he's a Hindu, he's a, he's a Buddhist. And he's all of that because those are all just labels that are defining our relationship to the divine. And so whatever language you, you know, you speak to make that connection is really, is, is what that's about. And so, yes, I would say that I am.
1: That's the deepest truth. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's the divine we're looking for, yes.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I call it
1: providence.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you found your way back. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for your time, Richard Yes,
4: Of course.
1: I'm in the living quarters at Quaker House still, and I have the good fortune of luring Manisha Rios back here with me. And she was enrolled in the military for a good
6: while and had some amazing experience. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was it Afghanistan? Um, no, I was in before that war began. I was in during the Persian Gulf era, originally. And what years was that? That was 97, 98 okay. time frame.
1: We've been at war for so long, they kind of run together for me. They do. All right. So if you would briefly just say what it was that you spoke about a little while ago, and then I want to find out how to carry that forward to other people who have had similar experiences or who are just suffering trauma and would benefit from some of the things that you learned.
6: Mm, thank you. Uh, So earlier I spoke about um, how as a survivor of military sexual violence, I struggled finding safe access to adequate care through the VA system and that that is why places like Quaker House, which really there aren't many places like Quaker House, are so important. Um, Also because a lot of times what those of us who have been in the military experience is moral injury and that's not really considered valid yet by the VA healthcare system. And so practitioners are often um, intimidated by that or don't want to touch it. You
1: know, I was speaking with a Vietnam veteran who's a friend of mine, and he was telling me stories. But every time he would come up to a story where he experienced a
6: moral injury, he will back off from it. But I just made that connection as you spoke. It oftentimes makes us confront ourselves and the parts of us that we don't want to see. So we all have our, our dark side, I guess. And mm-hmm. What I experience as moral injury comes from different aspects of my time on active duty and as a veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, as a perpetrator of violence against innocent people, as part of a violent system that exploits and rapes and murders um, and as a witness to abuses of all kinds, um, and then as a as a target, as a victim, of certain things, certain crimes. It's
1: coming at you from every direction.
6: Yes, ma'am. Who's your, who's
1: your you said perpetrator, yeah. oh, okay. mm. and you don't have to answer the question, but perpetrator. yes, this was all screen. So
5: this was. Right. So, so, so which you way
6: don't um necessarily need to be in a combat situation or fire your rifle on someone to perpetrate violence in, uh-huh. a, in capacity as a, a soldier um, you, can, you can be part of that system. You can be in a different role and still be part of the harm that is caused by that violence. You can still be complicit in that.
5: Uh-huh.
6: So you came out of the military. Mm. What kind of discharge? Honorable, although that was that I had to fight for. Mm-hmm. I was going for a medical discharge, but part of retaliation for me reporting sex crimes mm-hmm. um, was a threat to be sent to prison if I didn't recant, and that there was no way they would allow me to get a medical discharge for what I, chemicals I had been exposed to, so my only option was an honorable discharge or jail.
1: It seems almost like that would inflict more injury. Yes. Sadly, you're not the only one. So there are other people out there who haven't faced this the way that you have and learned to stand straight again. Mm. If someone encounters someone like that and they can see that they're struggling with things such as this, how does a lay person,
6: mm. I mean, what is, you know, I mean, compassion, love, and love, how does that how does that show? How does that read? I think right off the bat, uh, listening is is the most important. Just being present. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily listening to respond, but just being there. And then just following the lead of the person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they may not know what they need or want. Sometimes it might be confusing and uncomfortable. But just try to stay strong in those really uncomfortable moments and just stay present. Mm -hmm. And if... The person no longer wants another presence with them, except that. Mm-hmm. You don't make it about you. Mm-hmm. you know, oh, I'm trying to help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't assume that you can either. Right. Um, I think that's that's been probably for my own experience one of the most beneficial things that anyone has ever done for me. And then when I finally do get the courage to reveal certain aspects of my experience, the fear is so huge that the way it comes out might be uh, messy or ugly, um, and to please not judge that. Thank you, Manisha. Thank you. I'm
1: going to ask you one other question. Sure. I put music in my shows. Huh. Do you have a song that you would suggest that I gather for it? Oh. The universe of music is there before me.
6: Oh, my gosh. There's a song, Puerto Rico, Patria Mia. That's a song that brings me joy. You're from Vieques? Yes. My family. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Have you been back since the big flood? I I did. I went this past summer for (laughs) the first time as an adult and saw what my family had endured and what they're still going through. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking. Mm
1: -hmm. Tell me about your experience in Vieques with your family. What is
6: there? There is electricity. They still need a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been a fight. The unexploded ordinance. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of the U.S. Navy in Vieques. I could only
1: guess. Go ahead.
6: Oh, right. So after the U.S. invaded and took Puerto Rico from the Spanish um, under the promise of independence for Puerto Ricans, then they colonized instead, the Navy expropriated approximately two-thirds of the island of Vieques which meant my relatives and many others had to leave their homes. They were either shipped off to other islands or work programs in, on the continental U.S., or everyone was moved to the center of the island. And one part of the island acted as a bombing range, where for over 60-plus decades, uh, years, excuse me, all, all types of bombs, different types of ordnance, chemical warfare was tested, Um, All but real war trainings took place. The first one was called Operation Portrex. The chemical weapons that were tested were tested on people's farm animals. Um, And so the Navy is supposed to be cleaning that up because Vieques is one of the few places that has successfully and peacefully gotten the United States military out. Slowly, slowly, slowly the land is supposedly becoming safe again, Um, but the Navy is using um, open detonation to sort of clean up in quotes um, all the mess that they left behind, but people have cancers. Some of my relatives have died. Um, it's, It's just full of contamination there. And so this is a major concern with the increased strength of the hurricanes as a result of the climate crisis and so, and that's a major issue that's still in Vieques. So when you ask me what's still there, I think of that and I think of the Seba tree where our ancestors live. The Seba tree? The Seba tree. Tell me mm-hmm. about that. It's a sacred tree and it's sacred in a couple different cultures, including Africa. Um, the I can't remember the name of what they call it there mm-hmm. among those tribes, um, but it's, it's where we communicate with spirit it's where with our creator Atabe, and it's where um our our loved ones go when they die and where we can communicate them with them
1: yes how what a wonderful vision (laughs) now is the seba tree a particular tree or a variety of trees Mm -hmm. or
6: it's a particular tree
1: Oh, so so it's a central like the tree like the the bodhi tree yes
6: yes so there are seba trees in other parts of Puerto Rico, uh-huh. this one in Villegas, it's um, I want to say it's over 400 years old, uh-huh. um, and so it's it's really special. Well, I hope you get to sit there again soon. Me too. But thank mm-hmm. you, Manisha Rios.
0: Today's guest host, who you just heard speaking with Manisha Rios, is Patricia Stansberry, and she is sharing some of the gold she accumulates as part of her lightly on the ground and Groundswell Radio Shows, which she does on WRIR in Richmond, Virginia. We're going to have her guest host periodically on Spirit in Action. We've got links to her and to the guests she's showcasing today on northernspiritradio.org, not only to them, but to all of our guests since 2005 all of the stations where our programs are carried, about 42 of them currently, and a place for you to post comments. Please do so and help us get to know you and make our programming locally relevant. You can donate on our northernspiritradio.org site, which is really important. But likewise, it's vital to support all of the wonderful community radio stations across the country, like WRIR and, for me locally, WHYS. Great stations with great volunteers and great local interests and energy. Back now to our guest host, Patricia Stansbury, and the second part of her interview for Lightly on the Ground with Manisha Rios.
1: Manisha Rios has called in from... Where are you now, Manisha? Manisha?
7: I am currently in
1: Florida. Okay. And Manisha is a Persian Gulf Army veteran who is completing a doctoral degree in liberation psychology. And we've come here to talk about military psychology, but I have to begin with Manisha. Thank you for making yourself available. What is liberation psychology? So
7: liberation psychology is something I'm still learning about, but it is essentially started by a Jesuit priest who was working with the peoples of El Salvador during many of the U.S.-backed interventions there that led to their brutal suffering. He ended up being assassinated by a U.S.-trained death squad specifically because he was speaking out about the United States' involvement in state-sponsored terrorism in El Salvador and speaking with other psychologists about taking responsibility for this and restraining our government. And so liberation psychology is psychology that works for the liberation of the peoples of Latin America, liberation of the poor, liberation basically of people who are colonized and oppressed by
1: vampires. Okay, I had the tiniest corner of that fabric. Thank you. And to get on to the military psychology, what is the history of that, and how did you work through that and find where you are now? The only thing I knew about military psychology, or the main thing, was what I learned back in the 70s when I was studying psychology and I don't know even what class it was in but we were told about secret detention camps and mind control using psychedelics and torture techniques and that was basically what I knew about military psychology until we had our conversation the other day well I did pull up this definition do you mind if I read that right quick Go for it. Okay. Military psychology is the research, design, and application of psychological theories and empirical data towards understanding, predicting, and countering behaviors in friendly and enemy forces, and in civilian populations. After studying military psychology for years and careful discernment, Monisha Rios wrote a statement that is included in her dissertation. Monisha, would you please read that?
7: This is from my um, literature reviews. The focus of my dissertation is on the moral injury that I have personally experienced while I've investigated the history and impact of militarized psychology in the United States. I am allowed through this method of inquiry to speak as a human being directly to my experiences and to conduct cultural critique through personal narrative. So this is essentially my critique as a former soldier and as someone who once wanted to become a military psychologist of the system, of what is in its own right an industrial complex, a military-industrial complex. So with that, I'll go ahead there is no longer room for fancy words and academic double talk in the conversation about the industrialized militarization and weaponization of the field of psychology in the united states of america this kind of psychology is used to kill people and destroy it is used to perpetuate the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny it is used to kill and destroy those who resist occupation colonization land expropriation, and resource theft by the United States government and by corporations based in the United States. It is used to create false narratives about who is and who is not an enemy of the state. It teaches hatred. It makes monsters.
2: There is no longer
7: room for the comfortable bliss of ignorance, the cowardice of conformity, or the lucrative convenience of silence, denial, and complicity on the part of psychologists, regardless of specialty or status as student or seasoned professional. No amount of profit, power, prestige, or privilege justifies our collective participation in killing and destroying. No amount of lying to ourselves and burying our heads in the sand is going to make the truth of who we are and what we do go away.
1: I now see the connection between the military psychology and the liberation psychology. Liberation psychology seems almost like the cure for military psychology.
7: Yeah. I am hoping to use it in some manner to do that. To not necessarily, I don't know, a cure is possible, mm-hmm. but rather uh, in exposing it and doing whatever is possible to eradicate it.
1: Yeah. Sure. Sort of an antidote. Yeah. So tell us about your experience that brought you to this, if that's a good place to go from here. Or you can tell us about the work that you're planning on doing. So
7: I... When I was in the military, I'm a, as you said, I'm a Persian Gulf Arab a veteran, of the Army. And when I was on active duty, I witnessed and experienced a lot of horrific things that led me to ask a lot of questions. After my discharge, throughout the years as I struggled with PTS and moral injury, I um, found myself leaning toward joining the helping professions. I got degrees in social work. And then I began my, my doctorate degree in humanistic psychology and I entered a transformative social change program. I had also entered a social movement of survivors of military sexual violence. And at the same time that I was receiving peace education and really having my worldview broadened, I was also seeing and learning about sexual violence and conflict. And because of the way that psychologists are involved in covering up sex crimes in the military, as well as in VA hospitals, the way psychologists are involved in denying veterans their access to care and or disability ratings, the corruption basically that exists just on that end of the spectrum, in terms of what what all military psychology covers, because it also has clinical applications, this started to turn my stomach. To learn that, you know, these people that I'm learning with, that we have an ethical code we are supposed to abide by, are not actually following through on that, and it feels a lot like being back in the military. So my pursuit to become a military psychologist was based on wanting to go in and advocate from within the system to change it, because I thought if I can position myself within the military in this particular power structure, with this particular set of um, attributes, I guess, with a PhD, perhaps I'll have a little more power and influence in creating this change. But what I discovered in just researching the history of how psychology in the United States became militarized, my stomach is completely turned and I no longer want to be a military psychologist. In 1917, uh, as the U.S. entered World War One, was when The American Psychological Association was still young, as was the science. And there was a quest for its uh, legitimization. And one major way that people could do that was to get contracts with the U.S. military or the War Department. Um, And there was also this push for patriotism and against communism. So there was the Red Scare that was just happening which of course was a threat to the ruling class and the elite in the United States, which unfortunately psychology grew out of. And so Robert M. Yerkes, last name is Y-E-R-K-E-S, he was the president of the APA at the time and strongly encouraged the membership to commit themselves to national service and to commit the science and the profession to national service. And What developed out of that was a very lucrative relationship that remains intact today, that has made the American Psychological Association the social institution that it is today, um, and has led psychology as a science and a technology to perfect, actually, I don't want to use that word, um, to enhance the psychological tactics of war that have existed since war has existed
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, which you know has been mentioned in Sun Tzu, um, the art of war and and many other places the roman the Holy Roman Empire and their army used propaganda techniques mm-hmm. um, in much the same way as we do today. However, in modern warfare, um, psychology is a, a major threat now, psychologists are doing more than creating propaganda for recruitment, mm-hmm. more than creating um, use of training techniques and and so on. They're developing autonomous weapons and using the science to further augment artificial intelligence and torture techniques, many other types of warfare. Economic warfare, psychological warfare, these are things that have been used um, in every single act of aggression from the United States. The Nazis were influenced by the U.S.'s development of these things, and they became as successful as they are during that time of World War II because of what they learned from the United States. So there's 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 a lot of ground to cover. Um, human engineering is another thing. So you know, the creation of human weapons, let's just say, uh, for argument's sake, is a result of the relationship between the field of psychology and the the US government and its military.
1: I need to latch on to this human engineering but
7: yeah. hum- um, let me grab, <coughs> let, let, yes, let me grab a book. This is one of the oldest books I could find still in print from original military psychologists. Um, so, this title is Military Manpower, Psychology as Applied to the Training of Men and the Increase of Their Effectiveness. This was written in 1920.
1: Uh-huh.
7: It basically talks about man as machines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh Okay. So, the foreword, the first paragraph says, notwithstanding the marvelous achievements of science and invention, and their adaptation to modern warfare notwithstanding the airplane the dirigible and the aerial bomb, the submarine, the mine and the torpedo, the machine gun, poison gas and super range artillery, man's most important weapon in battle is and will ever remain man in training against war therefore he must have our first and greatest attention Mm. so yes, human engineering is based in that and uh, now there's a book called Headstrong, How Psychology is Revolutionizing War this is written by one of the prominent military psychologists and it was published in 2014 so basically from, from the beginning to now there's this thing called human engineering which is now called human factor engineering and it's all about um, engineering us psychologically, physically, um, and in in coordination with how the actual physical machinery of work is
1: engineered, if that makes sense. It does.
7: So engineering and the machines to fit people and engineering people to fit the, the needs of the state.
1: Right. One thing I read in my research today was that there is work being done to... Um, create a drug similar to LSD, which was experimented with in the uh, mid-century, but to consider, they want to make a psychedelic drug that is not psychedelic, but they want that edge, that uh, the project is called Focused Pharma, P-H-A-R-M-A and it would investigate how to keep the psychologically beneficial effects of psychedelic drugs without any of the undesirable side effects like hallucinating that sounds a lot like mind control to me they don't want them going off on tangents where psychedelics when they were used um, in more controlled safer environments than the military uh... People were able to make some psychological advances. And some of the research going on now is dealing with PTSD and anxiety and that sort of thing with microdoses of, of hallucinogens. Uh-huh. But the fact that this group wants to make something that only has part of the constituents, it will specifically allow people to be told what to do better. It's headed, the Pentagon's su- super-secret research department wants the benefits of psychedelic drugs for its next generation of high-tech soldiers, but none of the side oh, effects. Yes. How does that tie into what you were saying?
7: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, it's always a goal to, to engineer us in such a way that we are not impacted by what we are doing, by what we are commanded to do by the atrocities that we commit. And so there's there has been for years, through various means, a push to inoculate us from stress pathologies so, so that we can continually be deployed. We uh, decrease the what they consider to be negative impacts of our humanity.
1: Oh, like excuse me. <laughs> okay, you know, go back to the negative difference. impacts of humanity. <laughs> yes.
7: Yeah that would prevent us, like, that would make us ask questions and prevent us from following orders. Or, you know, lead us to be a conscientious objector, or so on and so forth. So the the book I was just mentioning to you, Headstrong, How Psychology is Revolutionizing War, there's an entire section, these are this author's sort of visions of the future, future soldiers. Um, who can stay awake 24-7, who, because of resilience training um, and other psychological technologies, um, can, you know, withstand the impacts of taking life, can go from being told to kill on command to being a humanitarian and knowing the difference between a friend or a foe, And, and so much more. So it's, the, this section is, is called Engineering the 20, 24 oh, Building Better Soldiers Through Science. So this is just one of, uh, one of many ways that the Pentagon and these psychologists and other scientists who are involved are trying to do that.
1: Oh, thank you, Manisha. I'm stunned. Um, two things. One is that I like to put a piece of music in the middle of the show. And the other thing is, is there a use for military psychology that would actually be beneficial to mankind? Do you have a song that we might play that's related or not to this?
7: One of the Marley family. It's either Damien or Stephen Marley that has a song called Mind
1: Control. Okay. I bet you I can find that. Um.
7: Now
5: tell you what, it's mind, mind, control. Control. mind control, mind control, corruption of your talk, yeah. destruction of your soul, mind, mind control, control. it's mind, mind, control. Control. mind control, corruption of your talk, yeah. destruction of your soul. Hold your mind, they wanna control mankind Seems like their only intention is to exploit the earth hey. And you trust in their deceit, your mind causes your defeat And so you become an invention to distort this earth Propaganda and lies is a plague in
1: Mind Control. You are listening to Lightly on the Ground Radio, and my guest today is Monisha Rios. She is a Persian Gulf era veteran and doctoral candidate. Um, I know that it's hard in the VA to get, and in the military, to get counseling and that sort of thing. Is there a part of military psychology that is actually looking after the humans that they employ?
7: There, there is. There are the, the clinicians who get involved, whose whose intentions and goals are to help heal um, people who've been in the military. Um, I don't, I don't know that their efforts are entirely. Um, I don't, I don't know how to frame this without being insulting. I think sometimes it's naive. Um. And that, you know, many of them are also, you know, just hawking whatever snake oil they're creating. Because there's this whole other element of the psychology of the industry and the, the culture of the industry that is all about um, profit. And so so when you look at the context of, of military psychology and use for humanity, where it's actually healing not contributing to the wounds of war, but healing them. There's another area we need to contend with that psychology in the United States continues to profit from literally every part of war, every single piece of it. They're involved in recruitment. They're involved in the psychological operations to destabilize nations before we ever invade them. Mm -hmm. They're involved in economic warfare, they're involved in all of these things and, and then the recruitment of soldiers, the training of soldiers and the the manipulation of the American public to support war oh. the actual things done in, in conflict they're on the ground there too and then after, fa- after the fact in the aftermath they're there to pick us back up and put our pieces together again when they're the ones who tore us apart to begin with
1: Monisha Rios do you have any suggestion as to how what could happen to change this this system
7: Um, one of the things that needs to happen and that I'm I'm working on myself is there needs to be some consciousness among people inside the industry which is going to be very difficult And I've been trying to do this for a long time um, for us to follow the lead of the Microsoft Workers for Good and people in other industries who recognize that their technology and their science is being used for war and they don't want that. And so they stand up against it. So we need, as psychologists, we need to take the risks, the professional risks, the social risks, to use the power we've been given in society to say no we're not going to be a part of this anymore to hold our organizations and institutions accountable and, and, and then to actually own our crimes against humanity and to submit ourselves to international justice. Um, another thing that can be done from outside of the institutions is as, as peoples, as impacted peoples, um, we, we need to be educating one another building our own evidence, conducting our own inquiry into uh, the, the crimes of militarized psychology. And so I'm working on that too, um, to build the external movement as well. Um, veterans, those of us who have been harmed, who recognize that we've been harmed by this particular entity, um, also need to start speaking up and speaking out and challenging the American Psychological Association challenging with the truth with facts with you know what what people in my field unfortunately will discount as anecdotal evidence will not take seriously because they are not the ones who ask the question Mm. Um, or it was gathered in a study that then made it into an academic journal Mm -hmm. um we'll try to dismiss it and discredit us that's already happening but but the point is not to stop and the point is for all of us to join together to really um, attempt to dismantle piece by piece this pillar of the of the defense industry <laughs> complex of, mm-hmm. of the U.S. empire, etc. And then we can begin to heal.
1: That's a big job, Manisha. I'm glad you were on it. And we're all playing, we're all working our little parts. And... uh Thank you so much for being available to talk with me today, Manisha Rios. Uh, I really wish you the best of luck as you're moving offshore to Vieques, Puerto Rico, your home.
7: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's very exciting, and I hope that I can come and see you there.
7: That would be lovely. Thank yeah. you, and thank you for having me on and giving attention to this issue.
1: Yes, to both military psychology and liberation psychology. It's been a very informative time for me. This has been an episode of Lightly on the Ground Radio. It's a Sunny Gardner production for Richmond Independent Radio and other independent radio stations across the country. You can learn more at LOTG Radio on Facebook, or you can tune into our independent station, WRIR 97.3 FM. That's Richmond Independent Radio where we have archives where you can listen to these shows again and share them with your friends. Thanks again, Monisha Rios. Safe travels. Keep in touch. Wake up, walk in the light, and it. Thank you for listening.
0: You heard Patricia Stansbury, a.k.a. Sunny Gardner, who was guest host for Spirit in Action today, and we'll have her back soon. There are links to her Lightly on the Ground and Groundswell radio shows, and to her guests today, Manisha Rios, Chuck Fager, and Ricky Klausing on the northernspiritradio.org website. Lots of good stuff. It's slow radio, attentive radio, seeking substance and depth over flash and sparkle. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action.